More TV superheroes, just what the world needs. Ugh. Warning. DC on R&D, the Doom Patrol edition, contains adult language and discussions, as well as the occasional sexually explicit joke, and from time to time, some crude and off-color remarks. If you're easily offended, don't continue to listen. And then go fuck yourself. All right, hello, welcome everyone to DC and RMD's Doom Patrol Edition. I am Michael Flores, your host, and we're back in the bus. Driving, who knows where, to the fog, perhaps. And Paul is playing with his ball sack. You have to on buses. And David is watching thoroughly, taking notes. Hopefully not any having strange bumps around my body. I don't know how that applies, and I'm just going to go right over there. Why have you done this? <laughs> All right. You can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search DC and RMD, the Doom Patrol edition. Or if you want access to all of our DC-related content, just search for the main feed by simply typing in DC on RMD. Now, our preferred place for you to listen is iTunes because you can rate and review there. And when you do give us a rating... It helps trigger algorithms that then help others find our show more easily. So please do so. All right. We are here to discuss today. Do patrol season three, episode five titled Dada patrol written by Shoshana Sachi and directed by Kristen Wendell. And I'm in the studio with the crew, David and Paul. Hello guys. Hello. Hey. All right. The synopsis, Madame Rouge enlists the Doom Patrol's help after learning about her unsettling past while the rest of the team works to infiltrate the target. Rita stays behind and finds a surprising connection with their mysterious friend. All right. So last episode, David, I had brought a new idea to the show. Every episode we would come prepared with our favorite curse word or phrase of the week or of the episode, because admittedly this show probably has some of the best curse words, curse phrases of all time. I had mentioned shows like dead, uh, deadwood Spartacus. Oh yeah. As having some of the best cursing ever on TV. But I think this show might take the cake. After this season, because it's just one thing after another for Cliff and Jane that have they have me rolling every single episode. For me, my favorite curse word or curse phrase in this episode was from Jane, and it was when she called Cliff a dick slit, which is so <laughs> visual. <laughs> you know, I think that's the key to making a bad word really yeah. punch through. You, there's got to be some imagery there. And believe me, that's a lot of imagery. Yes. Because, like, who hasn't heard dick hole? But, like, <laughs> dick, like, dick slit is, like, you know, it's the same thing, but, like, it, you're not hearing the same thing. And it's also yeah. how, how it's delivered, too. Yeah. Because the only person that could say that is, you know, it works for that character. Because you expect that. Yeah. That's the thing that's the beautiful thing is, like, throughout all these episodes... I would say Cliff and Jane, me and you have gone back and forth about this is like their dialogue is some of the best written, most, you know, well written sarcasm. That's why I think it is. It's well written sarcasm. Yeah, for sure. 
it's good stuff. Now I'm I'm taking I'm g- going by your lack of sharing, David. I'm assuming that you forgot. I forgot. Oh, you fucking dick slit. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will gladly take the dick slit. And uh all you of course were absent during the last discussion. So moving forward with episode six and beyond, just have something prepared, jot it down while you're watching, because we have to bring these awesome curse words to light. We just have to make sure people catch them because they're great. All right. So let's get into this episode. If you were to look at this show's narrative all the way back to season one until now, you will notice that it's been designed as a type of character study for each of our heroes, almost like the observer, the audience has been sitting in a surgical arena where we observe in a meta sense, the writers working on the characters. We have witnessed their very slow progress as individuals as they seek to fix their mistakes and themselves. But there's only so much improvement to be done if, and this is the tie into this episode, if you don't know yourself, who are you? Was a question asked numerous times throughout the episode. This season alone, we've seen them lose their anchor and excuse for being messed up, i.e. physically and psychologically the person to blame, which is, of course, Niles. The loss at the fact that they have to move on and let go was solidified with how the episode started. Uh, Jane's representation of Niles burning to cinders, her little thing she built. Yeah, the scarecrow. And I almost feel like that's that's the last bit of Niles. Like he, his, obviously his presence is always going to be felt in a show like this, but that was them symbolizing the writer, symbolizing that the team is moving on from that, moving on from the issues of Niles. Yes. Um, So now as the writers get to work on this metaphorical surgeon stage, as I called it, we can take, we can take, um, the next logical phase and their development as persons. And that is to figure themselves out. Who are they? What are they? What's your purpose? Yes. So one of the prevailing themes, if not the singular theme of the episode was an existential one. Oh yeah. And not only did the plot support this, but the subtext as well as the imagery, which was carefully designed to convey these ideas for one, the fog was an allegory for their clouded perceptions of themselves, of their inability to see themselves or their purpose. And much of this was also set up in various visual metaphors. Cliff uh, talking to a woman trapped behind glass. Vic talking to uh, a man who's half machine and half human. Larry confronting his son, uh, his, his son. Jane being given the chance to be her own individual. Rita wanting desperately to understand her purpose and or destiny and the way she clings to those time traveling elements. Yeah. uh, So all of this was put together to convey a singular idea. The next step in their recovery is to learn who they are. Yeah. We're going to break each of these down. Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. Yeah. Because like the the point about this series is they are constantly walking away from trauma. And it, they're constantly trying to get past that trauma every single season. First season was basically the basic type of trauma, dealing with themselves. Second season was dealing with their personal issues with Niles. And now it's basically, okay, we've gotten over, just like what you said, Mike, over the Niles thing. And I thought 
this episode is truly where we actually hit our stride in diving back into these characters. I agree 100% because the previous four episodes, yes, they did a lot for this season in the way of narrative, obviously in myth arc, but also we were dealing with those last bits of clinger honors from the last season. And now we're starting something new. There's a new path and they're trying to figure themselves out uh, in the way of identity and purpose. And I, I really loved how they put each of these characters essentially on a spotlight and then delved into each of those issues of who they are as people. So let's start with cyborg scenario, which this, I don't want to say it's convoluted, but there's so much going on with cyborg this season. I want to say there's more going on with him this year than any previous season, because we're dealing with some of those, those elements from last season, but also there's so much more you're compiling things. Just when you think cyborg has dealt with something pertaining to his father, something else rears its head. Cyborg scenario was a little more difficult than the others to dissect because of that. But his moment in the fog, in my opinion, had everything to do with what's going on with him personally this year. Go ahead, Dave. You can jump in. I know you want to say something. Well, especially since, you know, like we started the episode with him, you know, essentially trying to medicate himself and just basically pour meds down his body and trying to find any way of maybe that's how I'm going to fix myself is just self-medicate myself. But in actuality, that doesn't work. And I I really saw that metaphor that you're talking about, about him walking into the fog and everything, especially coming out of being medicated. You're talking about Cliff specifically? Yeah, Cliff. And I'm like going, it makes makes really good sense that that character is going through that. And then when you get to him dealing with one of the first characters that are not going to call them villains because... But the first uh, member of the sister of Dada was Sachiko. And them dealing with, you know, like when Sachiko tells Cliff, hey, what are you? And they talk about their fears of like death. And, and look at that question. What does she what does she say? That first thing you said, what are you? What are you? Th- that's the prevailing question theme for all these characters, all of them. And, and I have more about Cliff that we'll get into the, in a second. The cyborg aspect, let's stay with that for a second because everything goes right into the next. Um, They use the concept of oppression as a metaphor to convey that cyborg is not free. Uh, There's something off with what his dad is doing. I think most of us can agree with that. He's enslaved by lies and deceit, and he's unwilling to ask the questions he must ask, whether that's because he knows something's off with what his dad's doing and he doesn't want to confront that thereby making him enslaved and, and he is willingly sitting there and not doing much about it. The guy was talking to the guy he was talking to was telling him everything. If you listen to every word, the bicycle man was saying, it literally tells you what's going on every bit with cyborg. He needed to ask certain questions that he's not asking. And it seemed like it was all about his father, but before he can break free from Silas and whatever plan he's cooking up, it goes right back to that prevailing theme. He has to know who he is and who he wants to be. And that cannot necessarily be who his father wants him to be. Number one. Now, bring it back to Silas. 
as we move through these episodes, I think it's more clear despite Silas, Silas's smiling face and giving him back the power over a grid, right? Yeah, Is that the grid. grid? It, there's ulterior, ulterior motives to that. Uh, and I don't think we can trust Silas. In a lot of ways, I feel like Silas gave him back control because he realized that his son's not going to stop asking questions. Well, I mean, yes, exactly that. I like even the the why he gave him back control or access to grid, like I, whatever. That's not even a thing. It's that he is very likely the one that did it. And yep. granted, you know, he comes out and he's like, I, I hacked it or whatever. And they don't know whatever. Like he's, he, I will not be convinced that he isn't the one that took it to begin with. Yeah. He took it away because as a punishment, because cyborg was, you know, asking the wrong questions. Vic was asking the wrong questions. And, you know, whether he feels like Vic learned his lesson or he learned the lesson that like Vic isn't going to stop asking these things, you know, either way he gave, he gave access back, but yeah, it's, do you think it was more about preventing him from asking the questions that he may ask if he continues not to have power over grid himself? That's where I'm kind of torn about that though, is because like he, during that conversation, I mean, that moment when Silas tells cyborg that, Cyborg is not a means. I think it's what do you say? It's not a means to reinvent his son or right. something like that. I truly actually felt that Silas was being truthful. Yeah, at that point. But you guys bring up and the, on the flip side, though, you kind of I I don't know if I could trust Silas still because it's kind of like could be okay. two things, Dave. Because yes, I want to believe him. Yeah, I want to think he's he's sincere because it does come off that way. It does come off that way. However, when you listen to what the bicycle man said, I'm just going to keep calling him bicycle man. A lot of it has to do with nudging cyborg to ask the questions he don't he doesn't want to answer. And I believe that one of those questions is asking if he can trust Silas. Can he actually believe what his father is saying? I mean, there's also the whole aspect that plays against that notion because the writers want us to believe in Silas's sincerity when he says I don't want you to think that I want you to be the man that I want you to be I'm I'm paraphrasing basically what you just brought up David Um, I feel like that is the writers intentionally put things like that so that we as an audience don't start getting suspicious but when you again look at everything we were given I think there's a lot of reason to be suspicious. And yes, this is, in in my opinion, this is a big part of why Doom Patrol's cyborg is such an interesting, not just an interesting character, but like such a good version of cyborg because, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you've, you've got Silas in this picture and it's, you know, there's two tiers because, you know, cyborg isn't, isn't just, his kid anymore right he's not just his son he's not yeah. just a person he's becoming so, his own hero but you've got you've got the dad doing you know doing these things and like maybe it's parent looking out for whatever trying to make the help his son become the best man that he can be you know parent stuff but like there's also the like what the fuck are his real motives what is who 
that's who who does he work for or who works for him how much control over all of this does he really have is it all of it is he a pawn like it's it's not just parent looking out for child or parent trying to have the child's best interests at heart it's like i think silas is a shady fucking figure i think it's clear that he's being controlled like and not just because the previous you know four episodes He's still being controlled. He's being manipulated. He being Silas or he being no, Vic? Uh, Vic. Cyborg is being manipulated. I, I don't feel like Silas is being sincere at all. Uh, I did at the beginning. I was like, okay, well, maybe we are going in a different direction. But then when we get that whole bit in the fog, that tells us the opposite. If you really dissect the metaphor as well as the subtext, you will realize that it's a warning. You're being oppressed, my brother. It's a powerful statement for sure. And he, you know, Vic, Vic gets to the point where he, he's understanding what he's hearing, but he doesn't like it. And he gets angry and angry. Vic is like one of my favorite versions of that character because I mean, as, as, as like simple and fucking stupid as it is, um, you've got this character that's like, he, you know, he wants to be a justice leaguer. He's always trying to see like the bright side, trying to be level headed, trying to be positive as if he's trying to be a role model for somebody that's not actually looking at him. And then occasionally you'll get a glimpse of like, just, just him being real, him swearing or being like, like, fuck you, man. Like it's, I, I love that. I love him being like real. I you agree, yeah. especially because he is the classic DC superhero. So to see him become very passionate mm-hmm. and disgruntled, it has a grounding effect for the character that helps the audience uh, in an empathetic sense. We we get what's happening to him. Like we understand the problems he's going through. And the sad thing about it is just it's more the same from some of these characters, um, meaning, and that's not a bad thing. Because this is how people act when they have psychological and, you know, psychological problems, trauma. He doesn't want to be forced to look at the truth. That's why he's getting mad. Yeah. 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 So it says a lot. And I don't think this has been stated enough. Especially because, you know, we, we've been talking about how great all the characters acting has been being portrayed. Yeah. But in this particular episode... Bill Morris playing Silas has been, this is the strength of his acting because he has me constantly. I don't know where Silas is going. It's really good. And the ambiguity it really comes down to his performance. Yeah, I agree. Because like Phil Morris comes off as, you know, this cool dad. But then again, he comes off like, just like you said, Paul, he's keeping secrets and we could see it. I want to speaking, speaking of just fucking segueing into performance and onward. Um, when he, when Vic abruptly gets grid powers back and he, he fucking says, <laughs> I, Booyah, yes, like, I loved I, it. I did too. It was did like, you? they, they made it fucking work. And yes. I was so like, I was impressed and yeah. I was pleased. And like, it was, I did not expect, and I'm pretty sure they've had him say it at least one other time. I think yeah. that's one of the few, this is one of the few times. I think maybe twice. Yeah, three it times just, maybe. it, it, and he seemed like so energetic, whatever it, it's, I'm, I just, I, I think back to in the original, like the Joss Whedon justice league, when 
when Cyborg says booyah and that, and like you can see the disdain in his face having to say that line. He didn't want to say it. Right. And yeah. then and then you get the way that Cyborg and Doom Patrol like delivered and like yeah. just embodied the line in that moment. And like the show overall made it work and just, you know, whatever. Just how 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 things can be done correctly and incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you- Jovian Wade that him him too we don't speak a lot about him he's been doing a really good job with cyborg even though i mean last season i think you would agree with me mike last season cyborg kind of took a back step his storyline kind of you know kind of went into a a, i'm not gonna say a valley but it kind of curtailed down because you had so much going on with dorothy and the candle maker and everything that we didn't get a lot lot of development like we should have with cyborg here in the last couple of episodes i've been noticing that jovian wade's been just bawling with his with his performances not just with the team but when he's dealing with his dad especially in this episode he's did a fantastic job as cyborg and while like people have been saying like oh brendan frazier and matt bomer have been doing fantastic no one's giving like Jovian Wade a lot of credit for his portrayal of Cyborg. I do agree with you, Dave. I I didn't have any problems with Cyborg's story at all the previous two seasons, especially the first season. I thought it was oh, great. The first season was great. Uh, second season, his connection to the team was a little more subtle. It was definitely there. It was there. Uh, at least in the ways of thematics, which is, I think, the most important when you're dealing with an ensemble cast is to make sure something is keeping them connected as a, as, as a group. Uh, but his story was also very much its own story because of the whole Ronnie thing, getting away from Doom Manor. And it worked, but you are right. It felt a little disconnected at times. And when you compare the first season and this season specifically, he his story is way more interesting. Uh, it's using, of course, the foundation built from the previous two seasons. And that's sometimes is going to happen. Many times we don't view it that way. That Oh, I love him this year, but why do we love him this year? It's because we've now had two, you know, two plus seasons, or if you're talking about any other show, three, four years sometimes of this foundation that's been built upon. And now we have an entire house that this character resides in, if you will, uh, narratively speaking. And that's why these characters get better. That's, of course, if you have a good of team, a good team of writers that knows how to continue to build out these characters and flesh them out. Yeah. If you don't have a good team, then every season a character is just going to feel like he has been reset and there's no real growth. So you are right, Dave. That's something that I picked up on as well. I do enjoy his story a lot more this year than the second season, for sure. Um, Let's talk about Jane's story. Uh, in this episode, this is some deep stuff with her as well. Uh, it helped, number one, her story to bookend the narrative. I like what they did. Uh, Jane is having her own existential crisis because of Kay, which is a catch-22. She's supportive of Kay's progress because she's a good person. But with Kay wanting to go up and take control, Jane is also being forced to reconcile what this all means for her. Who is she if not a protector of Kay? What will her purpose be if Kay doesn't need her any longer? And this is no doubt what the other alters are, are, I should say, why the other alters are being so protective and trying to put her away. They, too, are afraid 
of what this means. They will have no purpose. If K is okay, none of them have a purpose. And that's why the fog, a.k.a. Shelly Byron, was able to get the chain by using these fears against her. But she, too, asked the question, who are you? Tempting her with the notion that she can be free of everyone else and be her own self. And that in itself brings the question back to the question, going to sound confusing, of self. Jane's condition always makes for the strongest statements because of the metaphysical qualities that comes with the underground. But what is the self? And here's a definition. The philosophy of self is the study of the many conditions of identity that make one subject of experience distinct from other experiences. The self is sometimes understood as a unifying being essentially connected to consciousness, awareness, and agency, which is exactly what Jane is going through Yes, in this, in this episode and this season. Also, you have to throw on to the fact that at its basis, what are all the person, uh, personalities, what has been their responsibility for this amount of time? To take care of Kay. Take care of Kay. They don't have to do that anymore. They obviously don't. And in doing that, it goes back to like what you were saying, Mike, it destroys their self-worth. It's, it's, it's an interesting and like scary development for the character because, you know, you've, you've got all these personalities that, yeah, they, they literally just exist to take care of Kay. And if Kay is getting better or just outright doesn't need them at all anymore, then like what happens to them? Do they disappear? But then like beyond that, they are sentient enough or what you know whatever term you want to use to like be afraid of becoming irrelevant because who the fuck knows what's going to happen to them at that point so then from there do they start sabotaging k like do they be do you do you become your own villain like that's this is going to get very fucking interesting because like it can't not yeah because like especially since you're dealing with every single personality that we've met at this point I can see basically accepting the fact that Kay is getting older. She can take care of herself and accepting that. But the other personalities, someone like Hammerhead. Well, no, I, I, I like everybody other than Jane was like, hey, don't let Kay do shit because she don't do that. Exactly. But Jane's the first one that can actually that, that can turn a lot of the personalities and basically say, no, it's it's OK. It's OK. We're it. In a way, the whole Jane storyline is like a, almost like a storyline of enlightenment. Like all the personalities have to attain this moment of re- a realization that their self-worth is because they get further along. Well, if you're <laughs> created for one purpose in mind and that one purpose is removed, you have no purpose. At exactly. least that's how those individuals feel. And this goes back to even, you know, people who struggle with um disassociative disorder disorders yeah. that was called i always forget mm-hmm. the name of it dissociative Disso- um, disorder i've always found this disorder interesting because you've got to be extremely intelligent to begin with uh, but to they say that in order for this to even occur you have to be highly intelligent because your mind is being partitioned mm-hmm. and you're creating real people when they do brain scans of these individuals they're completely different. They're completely different. The way they sign things are different. 
some speak languages and no one knows how they learn the language. It's very complicated when you start delving into issues of the mind. So that being said, there's also the ethical issues pertaining to Jane's or Kay's growth because these characters do deserve to exist. They're people. They're real people. So that's why if you look at it from through an empathetic lens, you can understand Hammerhead, why she's acting that way. You can understand the other characters, why they're acting that way, because what does this mean to them? They could just simply disappear. They could be killed off in some brutal manner by another altar that's it's trying to get rid of them because no longer you're no longer needed, just like we had with last season. They alluded to the fact that, hey, I'm getting rid of these people because they're no longer needed. Obviously, that ended up not being the case, but that was a fear they played with last season. Well, remember the whole the whole fear of the well. Exactly. The whole fear of the yeah. well was the, was on the personality's mind. That's their that that was almost like the personalities. Their version of death was being thrown into the well and being forgotten about. Yeah. So it's very complicated stuff. Um, just to bring it back a bit for the purposes of segueing and the self sometimes um, being a unified, connected consciousness, awareness, and agency. When you look at everything pertaining to that, this describes Jane perfectly, but these definitional parameters can easily be prescribed to each of our characters. Oh, easily. Going back to Cyborg, he has no control over his body. He lacks true agency and he suffers from a lack of awareness. Cliff as well, being trapped in the robot body and suffering from Parkinson's leaves him without agency of the physical type, but also the mental He's losing his mind, essentially, losing control over the only thing that's real. The only physical element that's real, his mind. So all of these things pertaining to the self are all connected across the board, even with Rita, who is aware. She doesn't have lack of awareness. She's probably yeah. the only character that's aware, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but this takes us to Larry's issues. His, his problems are a little different. They're more obvious. Uh, he's struggling to find his identity without the negative energy. Uh, just as he was becoming comfortable with who he is, he loses the very thing that was helping him come to terms with his life choices, including his sexuality. And now he's left to figure out who he is as a singular person. Yes. And then you throw on the fact about the whole, you know, I think it's kind of obvious to the audience that the growth on him is probably a living being because it keeps moving for or throughout his body. Well, and and especially when it when it zip zapped, it like it glue electrically this episode. Yes. So so like the narrative continues. <laughs> you it's you're. I think they're gearing up for Larry to really start diving into what I always wanted Negative Man story to, to turn to after he's dealt with the initial story in season one and season two start diving into the comic book where it's, he has an electric son. He has an electric son. How actually deals with gender identity. Basically he's oh. a, he's a man who's pregnant. That's amazing. <laughs> I hope they do that. Cause that could be some, that's a beautiful Avenue for some fantastic social commentary. Well, I hope they fucking And especially do that. since they kind of really hinted, they, they really showed that Larry, even though in season one, we kind of saw him as that, you know, neglective father he really loved his son 
<laughs> and oh, he hated himself so much. He hated that himself. His it, it, choice was to run away, run away hide from himself more than his family, more than his family. Yeah. But it was the, in a way, it was like he loved his family enough to hate himself. You know, <laughs> I think he hated himself because he knew what he was doing to them was destroying them. And that's something he had to deal with over those last two seasons. And he has come to terms with who he is. That much is given. And that's why I said at the top of the show, it's we're like those classic, you know, turn of the century audience members that observe the surgeons doing their thing. And we are we have, you know, front row tickets access, if you will, to what the writers are doing behind the scenes. We could totally see them working on these characters and fleshing them out in stages. You had mentioned the back in season one, Dave, that essentially all of season one was a therapy session. But it's 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 season two, it's season three. And as they work through one problem, just like if you go to a therapist, they work on one thing. And, and then, then once you 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 kind of figure that out, what do they do? They go to the next. And now we're dealing with identity issues for everyone, who they are as individuals. And I'm wondering with Larry, if this is why the writers brought his son back into the equation. Perhaps being a father is something he has to be, something that he's neglected and refused to be for decades and maybe that's a part of who he is the question who are you i'm a father perhaps this will lead to discovering his purpose and identity and we will learn what it means to be larry trainer because why else do you bring back an element that was i don't want to say it was resolved but it was dealt with last season he realized he made a mistake going to his family you know when he wasn't fully recovered or healed himself and he just stirred a hornet's nest yes so now we're bringing him back into a season that doesn't really have a lot to do with that aspect it has to do with that with the general theme of this episode of who you are who are you who are you and that would make sense and if larry now has to be a father that takes care of his sick son not only that could that be great redemption for him as a character since he no doubt blames himself for his other son's suicide, but also from a standpoint of figuring out his place in the world, his purpose, his identity, this will help with that. And of course, Dave, if we go down the route that you just mentioned that he's going to have a, a negative energy son, uh, there could be some interesting parallels there. Yeah. So we'll see. My Anything two, you guys want to add with Larry? My two sons. My two sons. It's going to be the next spin-off. one is old and the other is electric. <laughs> I'm going to put that to a beat. I'm going to, I'm going to isolate that. <laughs> that's why I was quiet there. I'm going to isolate that. And that's going to be exactly how we start the show up next episode. Um, anything else you guys want to add? His story is a little straightforward, pretty much straightforward, in, straightforward in this episode. But it's a lot of it, Larry's is the one that basically had set up. We, we didn't get any di- deep diving in. And I think that's the beautiful thing about Doom Patrol is like every single episode will dive into like three, two or three characters, right? Their, their own quote, quote unquote personal journey. Mm-hmm. But on the top of that, we're still going to not forget the other characters, but set them on the path. Yeah. That's how I saw Larry and Rita at this point, because Rita's uh, Larry's, journey is about kind of i'm hoping that it goes down that path of dealing with you know 
gender identity and dealing with, you know, the son aspect. What does it mean to be a father? We finally get to see that because that's the one thing that I think while Larry got over it, we never truly saw like, was he a good father? I mean, besides the fact that just like you said, he got over being a bad father. Exactly. Like giving him a chance to be a good father. Was he ever a good father? Well, I mean, no, exactly. <laughs> but, but giving him the chance to do that could be that that thing that he needs to better himself. Exactly. It's the thing that he's missing. And I I love like talking. It's a lot of times when we do these shows, I'm quiet for like the upfront because I'm just like, I'm just listening to shit. Like I, a lot of this, because I thought that him finding Paul and like all of that was fucking weird. And then I made a joke about him having an electric son because I just figured it was going to pop out a full blown electric other uh, man again thing. Full yeah. grown, full grown adult electricity. And uh, <laughs> listen, and, this is such a weird show. Any way you describe it works. Yeah. <laughs> but if it like as david said if it literally is this thing that he has to like raise and all and of the grow. other like issues that they could tackle with that that makes so much more sense for reintroducing paul and what he's going to have to do with him and like all of these things are just like clicking and this isn't even like for sure where we're going yeah, but like yeah. it makes so much it sense now so much that- sense, especially with in regards to the negative spirit why did the negative spirit leave well obviously it left because it didn't want to raise a son it wanted to be larry <laughs> it wanted to be larry but he literally bailed he's a deadbeat father he's, he's a deadbeat father this dead is what father. it's like this is what you did to your wife now, now, honestly, he probably left because he couldn't inhabit the same body as yes. his son. But I kind of like the, the I'm, I'm beginning to actually see like what you guys are joking about is like this weird parallel that the, the, the entity that has been the strength of Larry for the past two episodes basically just pieced out and left Larry with a kid. Yeah. And OK, so this is something I didn't think of until right now. Through our discussion here. It also went into space, just like Larry went into space, space when he left his family. Yes. Think about it. Think about all the parallels. There, there are a lot of parallels there. And I will also say, we know that the negative energy cares about Larry. That's why it chose to come back. It doesn't need Larry after, I want to say, what, season one, when it, they figured out how to separate it and it took off. And then when he realized he was dying, he came back. He didn't need to do that. He obviously cares about Larry. There was a bond that they have created over the course of decades. And at first I felt like, yes, it's dual serving. We had the whole codependency thing that is definitely still uh, in the background uh, being utilized. So it makes sense for him to leave. And then of course the pregnancy aspect, okay, that justifies certain things logically from a plot progression standpoint. But when you look at what's actually being done from a mechanical side in the ways of story and what they're trying to say. Think about this. I have a feeling because he cares about Larry, he chose to leave his son or child with Larry to give him that opportunity to raise a a son. If that's what they're doing, Hey, listen, you don't need me anymore. Here's your opportunity to actually be a father. Take care of this entity. Now, see you later. Because you got to also remember the whole storyline of the entity, especially when it came to, I, I don't think we're done, but basically the, the, the last conclusion we had with the entity and Larry, it was very obvious. All the entity really wanted was Larry to be happy. Yeah. 
And yeah, we always said, well, it wanted to be happy because whenever Larry's miserable, it hurts the entity. But, <laughs> but in actuality, you know, at the very end, when he has that dream sequence and talks with the entity for the first time, the all the entity really wanted was Larry to be f- happy. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> well, and also if you go back, cause this, this whole event in this episode, as we're talking, it's making me look at a few things differently. If you go back to the first or second episode, whenever the negative, negative energy left Larry, there was a moment where we weren't quite sure what was happening when they were up in space or if they were in a different dimension. But when you go back and think about it retrospectively, it very much feels like he's saying goodbye to him. That's why he shows him his face. I'm talking to you. They made two of them and then he leaves. It feels like that was a goodbye. Now I'm not saying he's gone forever, but it was him saying, I, I, my job here is done for now. I'll be back with child support in about (laughs) uh, five or six years. So yeah, I like it. I think it works. And Larry's story continues to just, I think, wow me. It is a little more straightforward than the rest. And I I like to do my work to dissect things. Yeah, but but once you start dissecting that straightforward story, Mike, there's so much that's going on when you think about it. Without a doubt, yeah. The the negative spirit is kind of like forcing it because whatever, right? So they were were codependent with each other, Larry and the negative spirit. Yeah. Um, With the spirit leaving, but leaving the kid, like are Larry and the kid going to be codependent? Like, shirt in the same similar way that Larry and the original spirit were, but also no, not at all because a child and a parent aren't like codependent. The child is dependent on the parent. So leaving Larry with, with this being this form to like theoretically take care of is like forcing Larry to be that independent thing. Exactly. Yeah. And think about it. It's it. Larry knows, Larry knows from that interaction with the past energy spirit that if he were to feel bad or anything or negative, so to speak, it gives the other spirit, the energy spirit pain, right? Is he going to want to do that with a being that's technically his child? That's a good point. (laughs) It's going to force him to acknowledge a few things that he may not want to or things that he just hasn't thought of. So we'll see where it goes. I definitely enjoy the hell of that aspect quite a bit. Wouldn't it be wild if just none of that pans out at all and they go a different direction, <laughs> a completely different direction? They don't. Uh, Leave it to Doom Patrol, though, because that's something that Doom Patrol would it, do. Listen, any theories we have doesn't necessarily mean I'm a stickler for it. You know, it may or may not be there. I know uh, with interviews with other showrunners, they have actually told me when they've listened to our shows, they say, you guys pull things out that as a writer were probably subconscious and I didn't even see it until I listened to you dissect it. And you're like, and then I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, John worth one of the showrunners that I've interviewed numerous times specifically said that to me as he's laughing. He's like, you guys break shit down to where I'm like, was I doing that? And he's like, <laughs> I was, he's a holy shit, you know? So a lot of it's subconscious. And, yeah. and I know, I've had these discussions with people who are other films, like not other film students in the past where they're like, they doubt that a lot of these things are there. Like that's a lot of like assumption, you know, how do you know that's what they're doing? I said, well, a good piece of writing uh, for television or movies is considered a piece of text. That's how 
most writers approach it. And a text is designed to be read and interpreted. And that's the same thing with TV. So a lot of these things are very much intentional, even if it's subconscious. It's there. Um, all right. So let's move on to Rita Farr. Rita Farr is probably one of the more, and I hate to say this because I, I don't want to take favorites. It's like with children. You don't want to take favorites. But her story is very interesting this season. Uh, once again, she is similar to all of our characters, but she's also willing to do stuff that they're not. For example, take active steps that the others are not doing. And she once again is willing to look at herself in the mirror. Whereas look at the, we can contrast that with, with Vic. Vic refused to, to, listen. <laughs> to listen. He got angry because he didn't want to ask questions. He didn't want to look in the mirror. In fact, there was a moment where he looked at himself in the mirror this episode. I, but not in a, hmm, introspective sense. It was like, get the fuck out of here type of sense. So go ahead. What are you saying? I, I feel like Rita is still, you know, I, I can't think of a better word, so we'll just run with toxic. She's still a little bit toxic in that way, though, because like her, she will look in the mirror, but her ego doesn't let her see what is actually in the mirror. She is. I I feel like all of this, um, you know, between being, you know, quote unquote, handed the keys to the manor by um, Niles and her. Yeah, just her her assumption or her like trying to create this destiny for herself of Rita Farr, world renowned time traveler. Time traveler. She's like she's she's like regressing because of this and becoming like a worse not a not a worse character by any means, but like a worse person again. She is kind of shirking off things that she should be responsible for and should be handling or taking care of in in an attempt to just like bury her head in the sand of herself. Well, that's the amazing thing is like in the last season, Rita was trying to become a hero. That was her narrative. And in the, in the end, she became a hero. She, she became more proactive. She became more of a leader role. Now here we see because of how toxic, because no matter what Rita, Rita Farr will always be toxic. Because that's just her character. That's just who she is. And the problem now is now that she's got this in her head that, okay, I can be the leader. I'll be, I'll take everything, you know, by the, by the horns, basically myself that, that goes into like the last episode where we were like, I was like going, why the heck did Rita actually sabotage the time machine originally and not tell anybody? Why? Because she's trying to be proactive. And in this episode, it all of a sudden just clicked for me because I was like, going, she's doing all this because she, in her brain, she's thinking I'm doing the right thing because I'm taking responsibility and doing the, doing the action that I, that I think is right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very selfish it's thing. It's a selfish thing. She, it fits her, she her sabotaged too. the time machine to keep Shannon the bird around so that she could ask more questions, questions so that she could dig up more information about what she is, I guess, assuming is her own future or whatever. Yeah. Because you have to read a, especially in this, the beginning of the season, really, they really open the book in my opinion on the possibilities of the character of Rita, because like 
I completely forgot that out of all the original Doom Patrol people, Rita's been there since like what fifty years. I think she's been there the longest. She's at least been there a, the longest. At least of and, this group. And now, it, now that it comes to fruition, that out of throughout that whole time, I came uh, this season. I came to realize that there's a reason why she was here the longest. There has to be that, and now we're getting to see it. We're getting to see. Okay, what did Rita do? Time travel, of <laughs> Time course. Time travel. <laughs> okay. Only in Doom Patrol. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I agree with both of you. She's not... She's not healed by any means, and she's still extremely insecure. Uh, she suffers from a serious case of narcissism, self-importance, uh, ego. She has all of the worst traits in, in, in a human being. But you know what's I mean, amazing? Those are some of the most unattractive traits in anyone. But you know what's the amazing part? What's Honestly, that? Rita, up to this point, is one of my favorite characters. I really, you know, you even though she is that narcissist and she has that ego and all those bad traits you're talking about, Mike, about like being toxic, the way she's being portrayed, you, I find myself constantly rooting for her. Well, yeah, the, those traits don't make her a bad character. Exactly. They make her a terrible person to have any kind of relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess the point I'm trying to make when it comes to her, her character this year and even last year, it's not that she is better. She still suffers from these issues, Absolutely. Yeah. but she has become more aware of these issues, which, Hey, listen, it's debatable. Does that make her a good person or a bad person? Knowing that she is very much aware of her problems and yet she still continues on with those problems. Now you can also look at it from the flip side. Yes. It's in her DNA to be narcissistic, to be egotistical, to be self-important. But at the same time, she is trying to take steps to create a identity for herself. She also is trying to fix herself by figuring out who she is. And that's something that she has a jump on uh, when you compare her to any of the other characters. She is taking steps she is aware. Um, yes, yeah, she keeps calling herself a renowned time traveler because she doesn't believe it herself. Well, I, I think everything that you're saying, I think that is where she was last season. She was trying, she was making strives to be and creating, you know, creating these characters like the beekeeper. But to, was it sincere though? Like, did she really want I, to be a superhero or did she just want to I think be the, a superhero? I think the beekeeper wanted to be a better person. And when the beekeeper failed, that's how she got to where she is now, where like, I'm not going to say she forgot that she was a garbage person, um, but like she's that's not her concern anymore. She's all wrapped up in. She, she failed and now she's trying to find something new that she can yes, cling to. Yes. That's why she won't let the time traveler, the time traveler thing go away. But she is trying to take steps to prove that she's a time traveler in my but opinion that doesn't I, help her be no, the better exactly, person yeah. she's, she has lost it. her own like thread she's lost her narrative yeah she she um rita wishes it to be true yes and the reason why because it gives her a perceivable destiny so she thinks and destiny in this scenario equals purpose for rita which she doesn't feel like she has that being said, her going back in time to force a destiny, 
that's probably not her destiny is very telling of where she's at mentally this season. And it goes back to strength of what you said. She has reverted a bit in one case. And then in another, she has progressed, but that progression is being stalled because of other issues that she has uh, fallen back into other problems. She's buying her. She's buying into her own hype. And yeah, that is a perfect way to say it it, is a, um, her own hype that she has created for herself and it can only lead to a downfall. So do you think her going back in time is so the Rita that pushed the other Rita, that was probably really her. Do you think she's going back in time to prove that she really is a time traveler and she's going to kill herself? Because Doom Patrol is just a weird, goofy adventure. I have no idea what to expect because we saw Shannon the bird face warping. So like I'm 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 not convinced that the Rita that killed it or got everybody killed was Rita at all. Exactly. But Rita thinks it was Rita. So yeah, is Rita going to go do that again or try to undo that? And what does it matter anyway? Because everyone is at this point alive again slash still. I just I have no idea what to expect from her stealing the time machine other than chaos. Yeah. And especially since, you know, during that the one thing I wanted to bring up too is like if you watch her reaction when Laura brings uh, when she brings up the whole thing about Niles and Rita is adamant about not believing it, right? Because she hates Niles so much. And that go that that's another example or another uh yeah, probably the best way to put it is an example of like her psyche at this point. It's like, it's chaos. It's all chaos at this point because she has her narcissism that doesn't want to be proven wrong. But then there's that part of her that's like going, I want to become a better person. Yeah, just refusing to see a, I mean, you've got this person with like empirical evidence Evidence. that they are not a great person. And like, she is refusing to acknowledge that because she doesn't like the person that the evidence came from. Exactly. And that's like, that's so many red flags on top of red flags. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We'll see what happens with this entire thing. It's not going to end well. It's probably going to end in true Doom Patrol fashion, just completely nuts and insane. But I will say before we move on, everything we had just gone through with Rita, this is where she's different than the rest of them. She at least wants to discover who she is, what her motivations are behind that, whether it be an ego or narcissism. She still wants to find a purpose. She still wants to discover who she is. And these are things that she's been trying to store. I'm not trying. She has been struggling with since last season, whereas everyone else are now they're now getting there. They're now getting to these questions that are being posed. Who am I? What's my purpose? And I think these questions come into play at a perfect point in this show because in a lot of ways, Niles was the anchor. He's the one that gave them purpose. Even if they hated him, he would say, all right, this is what we're going to go do, team. Uh, We're going to go after this guy. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. Now they don't have them or have him. So now they are forced to ask those questions. Because they no longer have that anchor. They're essentially adrift. 
Yes. I, I do. I do want to point out though, that while yes, like you said, everyone is working toward like being their better selves. Um, she, Rita has been working on it like the longest with probably, I mean, you know, debatably bad results or yeah. not the results that she wants. And now, you know, with world renowned time traveler and her stealing this time machine and all that, it feels like she is, she couldn't beat the game. So she's just reading the guide. He's reading she it. is. Yeah. She is. Yeah. She is not improving herself. She's just trying to get to a point where she is improved. And yes. that's why I'm saying her motives may not be completely. I don't want to say ethical. I'm not sure what the right word is. The motives are ambiguous for now. I'm 10. I am. I'm. I tend to agree with you, Paul. It, they're not great motives because they're very selfish motives. But the truth of it is still that she is trying to force an answer of who she is. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I think it's 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 entertaining. It's fun. Just like uh, all these other characters. It's very dynamic. It's very intricate. There's a lot of moving parts to, oh, yeah. to their self-discovery. I think that's what I loved about the ending, too, is kind of like that moment when they had the montage and they all just came back to the manor there. And essentially they've had a very intense therapy session, right? Yeah. And you just see them and they're all beaten at this point. And it's, it feels like a true honest to God watching psych therapy in action Yeah, where, you know, you, you have Vic in front of the mirror, you have Cliff's, still downing the pills and everything all after being shown a mental truth. Yeah. And this is what, this is what it feels like. This is what it's all about. Yeah. That's one of my favorite. This is one of my favorite ways. Uh, one of the episodes in this season so far has ended because it's gone back to the vibes of season one. Yeah. Where it's not all bang you know, glitz and glam and action and everything. It's truly about characters about mm -hmm. walking out of the trauma. Yeah. All right. So just to close out and reiterate, um, if this concept of self and purpose wasn't clear, let's take a look at the down the rabbit hole vibe of this episode. Uh, the metaphors, allegory, tangible representations of the intangible, they're all inspirations being derived from Lewis Carroll's work and Lewis Carroll's work has been analyzed for decades and many narrative theorists as well as psychoanalysts have for the most part come to similar conclusions. The main purpose of the story of Alice's adventures in Wonderland is that she is seeking or the seeking of self-identity and one's purpose within the world and when you look at the stylistic choices that Jeremy Carver and his writers went with in this episode, it is very much a down the rabbit hole vibe. It's very psychedelic. It is filled with metaphor. So it's pretty fucking fantastic work, artistically speaking as well. And let's add for the moment here, because we did not talk about Madame Rouge. We can add... Madame Rouge to this equation as well when it comes to who she is because she's a character who literally doesn't know who she is. Yes. So I, all of it just works so seamless with each other. I, I love 
I love that we're just fucking over the audience listening to us because you every time you speak about her, you call her Madame Rouge. David always calls her Lord <laughs> Mill, and I'm not gonna stop with Shannon the Bird. Yeah. Shannon the Bird. So like, and and we're all just talking about the same character. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh uh, yeah. All right. So let's move into final thoughts. Paul, you weren't here last week, so why don't we start with you? Um, I. I I like this show. I like I I have yet to see an episode where I'm like, oh, this sucked. But um, I I wasn't as jazzed about this episode prior to us like talking about it. Um, I think a, a lot more things like clicked and blah blah blah. You know, long story short, I went from like this is a good episode to like, oh man, this is a good episode. So, <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, that's why these discussions are are yeah. really cool sometimes because you guys do the same thing for me many times. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, okay, I see it. So I I think I'm gonna do. Yeah, and so the up and stuff. I I think I'm I'm gonna do like a 92 on this one. Okay, 92. All right, David. What about you? Uh, this is definitely for me, it's an uptick from the last episode. Oh, big time. Because like there's so much going on and so much delving back into what I love about Doom Patrol and taking a superhero show into realms that normally you don't see in superhero shows anymore. And that's why score wise, I give it a 90. But on top of that, the one thing that we didn't even get a touch on was the actual sisterhood of Dada. I mean, I loved the fact that they used the sisterhood of Dada in this one because of the idea of the, of the whole group itself is they're neither good nor bad. They're just a group that believes in anarchy and nonsense. And it's based on uh, Dadaism, which is like an art uh, how would you say it, Mike? It's an art. Uh, it's a pretentious art form. It's a pretentious art form back from <laughs> that what like Rita a, said. I forgot what time frame it was, but like the whole point of using them to challenge the Doom Patrol, not in like fisticuffs and fights, but basically an internal battle in their mind, I thought was a genius maneuver of using Grant Morrison's idea of that group and actually putting it towards like this story of dealing with mental trauma and essentially the doom patrol got defeated by the sisterhood of Dada. And now it's basically kind of like we have to see, can they overcome the sisterhood of Dada by the end? And it's like, it's so weird because to me that this feels like a true action fight scene to me. For the two teams. So that's why I give it a 90. But really a surreal, like surrealistic. A really surrealist, surrealistic. Surrealistic. Yeah. Fight scene. Yeah. Something was says. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The power of, of the mind. Of the power of the mind. It's a battle of the minds. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I guess I enjoy this episode way more than you guys. Cause I'm giving it a 97%. I felt like it was hitting on everything that they have worked towards since the first season. Everything's pointing at this direction. And we've also changed the course of our season in a good way. We have now gone through the first quarter of season three, and now we're taking those things that we worked on and we're 
taking it to a slightly different direction, but also essentially telling the same story. But we're showing the progress of our characters. So there is a development of uh, of the mythos. There's a development for our characters. And then the introduction of possibly a greater threat, which is the sisterhood of Dada. And they're a very inclusive group, by the way, because they have a male. That's yes, a part do. of their group. So, I mean, congrats for that. I mean, no exclusion of, of the male genitalia. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, we don't know what kind of bike nuts he has. That is true. He could. I'm also assuming <laughs> he could be a eunuch. I'm also assuming his gender, and that's a no-no. So maybe he's a woman. I don't know. Do does the camera ever show below the waist? Maybe it's just like a pedal. <laughs> That'd be so messed up. But it would is work that perfectly. How he stops? Like he puts it, he grabs it, and pushes it backwards, and a break. Yeah. So stupid. So, Dave, I am not familiar with that character. That's why I just called him the Bicycle Man. Oh, Frenzy. Okay, is that his name? Because yeah, he's not even named name that at RMDB either. Yeah, his his actual name is Lloyd. Okay, yeah, that's what I saw uh, on RMDB. Lloyd is his, is his basically normal name, but his code name in the Sister of Dada is Frenzy. And basically, he has the power to be the living cyclone. Interesting. And that's why it was... I was cracking up because at least they use the cyclone thing in the end when he whisks uh, Cyborg away. And I was like, okay, it's Lloyd, it's Frenzy. And that was the fun thing for me, too, is actually seeing their interpretations of the sister, the, the, I'm going to call them the original name, the Brotherhood of Dada, but like changing the characters up, but still keeping the core tenets and essence of each character. The only one that I was confused with that I even think a lot of fans were trying to, the, the game right now is trying to figure out who she is, is Sachiko, the girl in the, the Japanese woman in the glass box. Yeah. She's the only one that doesn't actually match any of the other uh, sister of the, uh, or brotherhood of the Dada. David, with big old Tawatawangas like that, she doesn't need to match. Okay. <laughs> That's the first thing I noticed. I'm like, damn girl. You want to get in that glass box, don't you? I'm like, no, I'm like, just put them on the glass. I'll stay on the outside. That's so <laughs> offensive. Uh, but, uh, okay. So this art movement, Dave, interestingly, I'm not familiar with it. I've heard of it, but I'm not like knowledgeable about it. So Dadaism is a celebration of anti-art that's later embraced by anarcho-political uses. So anarchy mm-hmm. and the movement that laid the foundation for surrealism, which also fits the the tone of the episode. Yes. So that's pretty fucking cool. And these, if you think these about writers that, are fucking just smart, dude, they are on it every episode. If you think about that's why I always tell people Grant Morrison is inspired by this. That's why it's so good. Oh, I can see that Morrison, uh, seeing a lot of Morrison's ideas come forth. I never thought about that. Morrison Morrison, could be a Dadaism artist, couldn't he? Morrison is very influenced by Dadaism because of like how it's very anarchy. It's very, you know, it's anti, it's anti comic book writing many times. Exactly. When you look at his stories, you're absolutely right. I never thought about that. So he has a bit of a philosophy as he writes his, his, uh, his stories. It's the separation between him and Gaiman, if you think about it, because Gaiman's more of like a fantasy writer where there is logic to it. But when you look at Morrison, that's when you see more Dadaism happening. Yeah. And it's more chaotic. It's more like, I'm going to take this random thing and make it work. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so that makes me like the episode that much more. I might give this 100%. Oh, it's 97. I won't blow it too hard. I'm trying. It's hard with a show like this because it is. I'll be perfectly honest. This is my cup of tea as well. Not only is it well written, but this is also my type of thing. I love this type of stuff. So that's why I try to be as objective as possible. And that's why I deduct, you know, a couple points here, a couple points there, just to make sure that I'm not allowing my fanness to infiltrate a an objective discussion that I like to have with these shows for the most part. So, all right, let's uh, bring our episode to a close. I want to thank everyone for listening. And also, please visit us on Patreon. Uh, if you guys want us to continue to do, the, do these shows every single year and month and week, we have to have more subscribers to our Patreon page. Right now, we're sitting at 94 or 95 subscribers. We did have some cancellations. We were up to 120 at the start of the year, but a couple of our big shows came to an end. And with that, we lost a lot of subscribers because they were subscribing to listen to certain discussions. And now that we have no content for those shows, they canceled. So I understand that. Um, However, if we are to continue to do shows, we have to have Patreon subscribers and my goal is at least a hundred. That's easy. That's six or five to go. So please help us get there before the end of the year. Because if we don't get there, I have to make cuts next year. And I hope Doom Patrol's not one of them, but who knows? So please, patreon.com slash Rayman Digital, head over there. I am holding this show hostage, essentially, if you don't do as I say. Thank I'm you. Dick slip. Oh, wow. Later. Thank God that's solved. Mint juleps.